Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. Well, Greg, happy almost first Monday in October. Same to you. Oh, thank you. All of you court watchers know that that means the justices are about to kick off their 2023 term. On October 2nd, the justices will hear the first of six cases scheduled for the October sitting. And we're recording this on Thursday, September 28th, so we won't yet have orders out of the court's so-called long conference, at which the justices consider all of the cases that have been piling up over the summer. We typically see a handful of grants out of that conference. Today, we're going to take a high-level look at the upcoming term. Everything from guns to ethics to potential Fifth Circuit slapdowns. But before we do that, there's been a lot of action at the court, even though the justices have been on their summer break. We wanted to chat about two of them. Greg, uh, what's been going on with the social media case involving the Biden administration? Yeah, there's been a lot of procedure and not a whole lot of substance in that one. There was an emergency application, actually still is an emergency application as of the time we're recording this, from the Biden administration because at the time it looked like it was going to have to abide by restrictions on its ability to uh, have contact with social media companies. There were uh, some officials at the CDC and the White House would not be able to talk to social media companies. This is all in the context of a lawsuit stemming from efforts to combat uh, COVID misinformation. And essentially, before the Supreme Court acted on that request, the Fifth Circuit, which is where the case came from, said, we're going to consider a rehearing petition in this case, and we're going to put everything on hold. So that order is not now imminently about to start applying to the Biden administration. And so the Supreme Court, it looked like they may they were potentially going to do something pretty significant, maybe even grant cert in the case. Uh, that still could happen, but not for a little while. All right. And then um, just so that we give our listeners deja vu, Alabama redistricting um, has already been back at the court after last term's uh, somewhat surprising ruling in favor of those challenging the Republican-drawn maps out of Alabama. Uh, Alabama, after the Supreme Court ruling in June, the legislature there went back, redrew maps, but did not include a second black majority district as many had read the Supreme Court's ruling to require. They got a pretty pretty sternly worded opinion um, from the judges who had already taken a look at that case and the legislators appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court without any noted dissent said, no way, go back, do this again. So I, I thought that was significant that nobody dissented, not even the people who had dissented in the opinion. Yeah, definitely significant. It took them a few days to do that, so it's possible something was going on behind the scenes. Maybe somebody was thinking about writing a dissent, but it was that, uh, as people like to say, terse uh, one-sentence order that came out from the Supreme Court just denying it. All right, Greg, well, let's bring on our guest and get to uh, the meat of our show today. With us to talk about the new Supreme Court term is David Strauss. He's the Gerald Ratner Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago's Law School. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So when you look at this term, uh, looking ahead, obviously, we don't know everything the court's going to be deciding. But what what kind of jumps out at you as the biggest theme or themes of what you see? Well, I guess I would say that there are sort of three buckets of things that are going to be preoccupying the court this term and maybe maybe after this term as well. 
One is a kind of familiar theme by now, which is challenges to the administrative state, challenges to administrative agencies. There are a couple of pretty big cases up there, of course, the one about Chevron, but some other things going on too on that front. The second is what I would describe, or I guess what someone who's been unhappy with uh, some of the court's recent decisions would describe as chickens coming home to roost, mm. which is uh, areas of law where they've unsettled things. And you know, when you unsettle things, you stir up problems that weren't there before, and they're going to have to deal with those problems. And uh, the gun case that's now before them, that's an example. But there are many cases like that in the lower courts because they have dramatically reconfigured the law about the extent to which legislatures can regulate possession of firearms. And I think we'll see the same thing developing on the affirmative and affirmative action, mm-hmm. where they they sort of uh, changed the law dramatically, but necessarily have not pinned down all the questions that might arise. So we're going to see a number of cases, Not probably not this term, because it'll take a while to work the way through the lower courts. But I think that's that's another example of where there's been a dramatic change and it's going to precipitate a lot of follow-on litigation. And the third thing I'd say is instances in which, you know, as aggressive as the Supreme Court has been, the lower court, some lower courts are even more aggressive. And that puts the Supreme Court in the position of deciding whether they want to go along and agree with what the lower courts have done or cut back on what the lower courts are doing, even if in some sense they're equally sympathetic to it. I think the case involving U.S. government officials' communications with social media and organizations is an example. The case of bad methapristone, the, um, the, the medication for abortion, is another example of that, where they've got to decide what to do with lower courts that have gone in a direction that they probably didn't anticipate, but now it's now it's on their plate. Greg actually had a story about that uh, this week, about um, specifically the, the Fifth Circuit and um, sort of highlighting what happened last term where the court really rejected a lot of the more extreme arguments um, that had been accepted in the Fifth Circuit or in the district courts in the Fifth Circuit. Um, and you had mentioned this gun case. Rahimi, I wonder if you can talk about that for a little bit, sort of give listeners an idea about what that case is about and why it might fit into one of these chickens coming home to roost buckets. Well, the issue with that case is that there's a, a federal law that prohibits you from possessing a firearm if you're subject to a judicial restraining order that's based on your having engaged in domestic violence. And the question is whether that's constitutional. The lower court said it was unconstitutional. The background to this is that in the last, really last few years, the Supreme Court has greatly cut back on the authority of the federal government and state and local governments to regulate firearms. But even more sort of to the point, about the position that puts the court in now. This test they've set out is one that lower courts are having a very difficult time applying. What the court has said in various ways, I mean, that's sort of probably unfair quotation out of context from the court's most recent opinion in a case called Bruin involving the state of New York, said, well, you can regulate it if there's a history of regulation that, you know, okay, fine so far. How do we decide if there's a history tradition of regulating, say, in this case, individuals like this individual who is subject to restraining order? Well, the question is, is there a historical analog to that mm-hmm. regulation? And the court says, now, all you, all you need to show in order to sustain the constitutionality of regulation is a historical analog, not a historical twin. Well, I mean, if I'm a lower court judge, I'm thinking, thanks a lot. I mean, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> 
I mean, what, what do I have to find? I mean, supposing this, this sort of statute wasn't in place until the 1930s, which I think is right. I, I could be wrong about that, but wasn't in place until pretty recently. Is that a sufficient historical tradition? The government, the United States, wants to say, no, there's a long tradition of not allowing firearms to be possessed by people who are not law-abiding, responsible citizens. And this person is not. Well, that's that very abstract characterization would allow a lot of regulation. The other side is saying, but there's nothing like this, a, a specific tradition of regulating people subject to these restraining orders. So if I'm a lower court judge, where do I go with that? And there are going to be lots of instances like that in which the test the Supreme Court has given lower courts is so difficult to apply that there'll be varied results and the Supreme Court will have to step in and clarify, maybe step in many times. David, with regard to your first theme, the administrative state, this is a court that's been pretty skeptical, put some limits on them. What do you make of the mix of cases they have this term? You mentioned the Chevron case, or it's the Loper-Bright case, where they're reconsidering this Chevron doctrine that says if there's an ambiguous statute, uh, judges should defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of that statute. They're reconsidering that. But then there are also two other cases, one involving the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, another involving the the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, that have kind of more novel constitutional issues. And in both of those cases, the Fifth Circuit put some real limits on, on the agencies. And the Solicitor General, the Biden administration, came to the Supreme Court. So so what do you kind of make of the combination of those and where we're likely to go with regard to the administrative state? Yeah, that's a great question. The Chevron case, I think um, it's important, but you know, this we've seen this coming for a long time. The court has been openly skeptical, maybe isn't quite the right word, but but not not really committed to Chevron for a long time, to the point where even in the Obama administration, the Solicitor General stopped relying on Chevron because uh, in really the Solicitor General knew that the court wasn't interested in arguments based on this idea that if an agency's interpretation of a statute is reasonable, the court will defer to the agency as opposed to interpreting the statute for itself. So we've sort of seen this coming, and it's not clear that will make a huge difference. Uh, because lower courts have already kind of absorbed the lesson. And if you think about it, you know, you're a lower court judge, you have this complicated statute, an agency tells you what you, what it thinks, even if you don't have an obligation to accept the agency's view as long as it's reasonable, you're going to be inclined to say, you know, if the agency makes sense, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go with that. So I'm not sure that will be an upheaval in lower courts. The SEC case you mentioned, Greg, is that if the Supreme Court goes along with what the Fifth Circuit did there, that will be an upheaval. Uh, that case involves agency adjudication. Agencies, in addition to issuing rules, regulations that we all know about, also decide individual cases. There have been questions for a century or more, really, you could make a case since the, the dawn of the Republic about that behavior by agencies. Since after all, why is an agency deciding a case? Don't judges decide cases? And then various adaptations in the law to make it uh, acceptable for agencies to decide cases. And the SEC case, depending on what the Supreme Court does with it, threatens to uh, undermine that power of agencies to do this, which would be a dramatic reconfiguration of the administrative, uh, of administrative agencies. The third case about the CFPB's funding mechanism I sort of see that as a one-off. Uh, the CFPB has this unusual funding mechanism. 
um, they'll say it's okay or they'll say it, it's not. Uh, you know, it, it would be a signal about the extent to which they're willing to accept Congress's arrangements of how the administrative state works. But I wouldn't say that that is going to produce a, a revolutionary change. One thing that strikes me whenever um, I'm looking at not only the cases that the justices have already agreed to decide, but some of the ones that you mentioned that may be coming back to the court, um, abortion and affirmative action, is I feel like in earlier terms, we'd have these big blockbuster cases and then the court would maybe take a take a little quiet time. Uh, you know, the next term would be a little more run of the mill cases. I don't I don't feel like that happens anymore. Is it just sort of are we going to be seeing these big terms year after year or um, do you expect sort of at some point we'll get we'll get some relief? Yeah, I think you're right, Kimberly, that this idea that you have, you know, the storm, then the lull, then the storm, um, that doesn't seem to be the pattern, at least so, so obviously. I think there are a couple of things going on there. One is that when the Supreme Court is as aggressive as it is, the lower courts are emboldened too. So they don't just sort of stop with following up on the Supreme Court. They're striking out on their own, as in these Fifth Circuit cases. And so there's this flow of cases to the court from the lower courts, which maybe they welcome, maybe they don't. But it is, if you're a lower court judge and you want to do some stuff, the fact that the Supreme Court is doing a lot of things is going to make you feel less restrained. And the same dynamic operates, of course, with litigants, that when litigants see, well, these arguments that a few years ago would have been, you know, maybe they would have been taken seriously, but they would have been a long shot. Now they're getting accepted. Let's push the proverbial envelope and make more arguments like that. And then those filter up to the Supreme Court with greater regularity than they have in the past. David, this is a, something of a variation of that question, but do you see any signs that this conservative majority is easing up? So last term, there were a few cases that you know, some people thought could be really big conservative wins, the independent state legislature theory case, the Alabama Voting Rights Act case, the um, Indian Child Welfare Act case, and all those came out to where the, the liberal wing of the court ended up on the winning side. Is there any indication to you that some of the, the justices who are closer to the center of the court have decided they want to slow down a little bit here? Uh, I think it's possible, but I think it's easy to overstate the degree to which there is this, as you say, Greg, slowing down. And the reason I say it's easy to overstate it is it's related, as he said, to what, what Kimberly just said, when you have litigants making aggressive arguments that recently would have been thought to be really kind of extreme, and the court rejects the extreme version, that might look like you know restraint. But in fact, the fact that these positions are even on the table and getting adopted in a modified form, you know, in the slightly if you take a slightly bigger picture, that's a major development, and it's a major development in what would usually be called a conservative direction. Now, having said that, I mean, it's not hard to find signs of unease in the, as, as you said, Greg, among some of the justices about going too far too fast. But, you know, usually the signs of unease are manifested in these concurring opinions that say, you know, well, we did this, but it's really not what you think, uh, but we did it, but it's not what you think. You know, I think it's a, it's a real thing that there's some concern among some of the more, some of the justices who were less enthusiastic about these moves. But it's really easy to see 
to see that where what you're really seeing is a rejection of positions that a few years ago would have been thought um, uh, to go way too far. And I think somewhat counterintuitively, you know, we're talking about these um, sort of major cases and topics that the justices keep hearing. At the same time, the court is hearing fewer and fewer cases each term. What's behind that? Are there just not uh, these small cases for them to take? Are they not really showing an appetite to to hear them? You know, I think this is a puzzle. I mean, I sort of was involved in a small way in Supreme Court litigation. And it's a puzzle among Supreme Court litigants. What do you have to say to get a petition granted in the Supreme Court? You know, it used to be, this is going back now maybe 30 years to the Burger Court. It used to be if there was a split in the circuits, the case would be granted. Or if it wasn't granted, Justice White would write a dissent saying we should have taken this case. But you could pretty much count on that. And they would take uh, maybe 200 cases a year. And that is no longer true, of course. They're taking way, way fewer. And exactly why? You know, I think there might be a couple of things um, operating. I, one one thing, it's hard to know what, what to make of this, but one story you hear from the inside of the court is that because the all the justices now belong to the uh, certiorari pool where the clerks screen the certiorari petitions and decide, make recommendations about what cases the court should take. And if you're a law clerk, you're going to look worse recommending that the court take a case that it doesn't want to take. So your inclination is going to be to say, don't take it. So that's one story you hear. Who knows if that's true? The other thing that might be going on is some, and it's hard to know what to make of this too, is some kind of apprehension on both sides of the court that if we take this case, we might lose. You know, let's not, the liberals might not want to take a case because it's a conservative court. So they're not going to vote even if the otherwise would to take a case. The conservatives might think, well, you know, we'd like to take this case and push the law in our direction, but I don't know, can we get the chief and Kavanaugh when push comes to shove? Uh, maybe let's lift things line. So that that dynamic could be operating too. But it's a recurrent puzzle, and I think a legitimate criticism of the court that it should be doing more work, that there's some unsettled stuff in the lower courts, and they are leaving it unsettled. And you hear this from lower court judges too, writing in their opinions, you know, and these are often not super high profile issues, but they're issues of, you know, great importance to a significant number of people. We don't, we, we, we're uncertain what the law is. You're seeing cases come out one way in the Fourth Circuit that would have come out differently in the Seventh Circuit. You know, Supreme Court, please clear this up. And, uh, and there's probably more of that than there should be. David, the potential case that if the court were to grant could overshadow everything else would be one involving Donald Trump and the 14th Amendment and the insurrection clause. What do you think the chances are that the court has to resolve that issue? And for that matter, you know, are there other cases in which Donald Trump is a party that you think are likely to come up to the court this term? Oh, boy, great question. Um, For what it's worth, my instinct is that the Supreme Court and courts generally will shy away from the um, insurrection issue, the 14th Amendment issue about whether uh, Trump is disqualified because he participated in insurrection. Now, they might do it by rejecting the arguments of people who want to disqualify Trump on some grounds other than the merits by saying it's a political question or something like that. But I think every one of their instincts will be to avoid deciding that. You know, there are other cases rattling around involving Trump. I think none that I can think of that are right on the verge of going to the court. There is a pretty interesting case in which the D.C. Circuit uh, held that 
members of a congressional committee did not have standing to demand information from government agencies, which kind of is an echo of the the case about Trump's tax returns. That's an interesting case that I believe they've, they've now granted. So we could see sort of inferential things like that that will affect Congress's power to investigate President Biden or former President Trump. Other than that, I don't see any Trump cases on the horizon, but, you know, that mean they, they, could, they could come up anytime. So I don't think that we could really call ourselves the Supreme Court podcast and talk about the term if we didn't ask you about ethics, um, which just seemed to be uh, of major interest in the public these days. Greg and I have discussed the many reports of ethical lapses. Um, there were more over the summer while this podcast was on hiatus. What do you think about that whole situation and, and, and what is the court going to do about it? Yeah, my my sense is that they know they have to do something, mm-hmm. and they do. And you do see these hints coming out, you know, we'll, we'll take care of it. We're thinking about it. We're working on it. And I think they have to do that. I think the, the current situation, I don't think it's acceptable for the court. I don't think it's acceptable for the country where there are these clouds of suspicion about the justices, justified or not, and sort of constant um, now politically inflected uh, discussions about the court. Um, now, as far as specific cases, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously people have different views about that. I, one of the dangers of leaving things unsettled as the court has is that you get these justifications that sound hyper-technical. Oh, you know, no, that's not, you know, yes, if it were uh, truly a gift, I couldn't take it, but it's not really a gift. It's just entertainment those things. And it's really just so unseemly and just such a bad thing for the court to be saying, you know, if you take a look at what this justice has done and you hold it up to the light and you squint at it, it's really okay. You know, that's not, that shouldn't be the test. I mean, it should be, you know, totally within the bounds, no questions about it. And uh, as long as things are hovering in this area where you get these attenuated defenses, which may be right, but they look like people who are trying to cut it close. And the Supreme the Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States should not look like people who are trying to cut it close. So they'll issue a code of conduct and everyone will be satisfied. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, the yeah. next step is some kind of enforcement. You know, it yeah. be a step in the right direction and at least give some assurance to people that we're paying attention to this and we're trying to do it. And of course, let what goes on after that, very hard to say. And it will depend on the internal dynamics of the court and the relationships among them. But I can't imagine that the justices whose ethics have not been questioned are happy about about what uh, what's going on with their colleagues, um, because it kind of sheds a bad light on all of them and also exposes all of them to tit for tat. We'll go out and we'll dig up something that you, Justice so-and-so, did uh, in order to make you look bad because the justices we look like are being made to look bad. And so they dig something up and it might be distorted, it might be all wrong, but meanwhile, you've got to, to deal with this. I mean, I can imagine that they think that's a a, a satisfactory even tenable state of affairs great well thank you very much um, for joining us today Uh, totally my pleasure thank you for having me so that's going to do it for today's episode we'll be over at one first street to cover all the news from the court's first week be sure to check out for updates on news.bloomberglaw.com thanks for listening in a global tax landscape that changes by the day It's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. 
Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.